All right. In the narrative of Exodus, we are now in chapters 11 and 12. If you've read ahead of time, you'll know that this is the chapter on uh, the Passover, so the final plague being threatened. Uh, Brian did an excellent job preaching on the plagues uh, last week, and then the actual Passover event uh, in chapter 12. I think, for me, that these present probably the most memorable chapters within uh, the Exodus account, and perhaps maybe in the whole of the Old Testament, everybody knows about this particular passage. Uh, As we do not have time available to read the entirety of these sections, and I don't think you want to hear me drone on and on and on through two chapters, uh, I will summarize them for you. So beginning in 11, we have the final plague threatened, a foretelling of the final plague, which is, as we know, the death of the firstborn among the Egyptians. And then at the end of 11, again, the narrative notes this fact that Pharaoh has hardened his heart. Chapter 12 ebbs and flows between the present narrative and future remembrance of the Passover event. We see that kind of intertwined together within uh, the text. In these two chapters, we have this. We have past, so a foretelling of what is to come, that the Passover is going to come. We have present, so we're reading presently what's going on within the Israelites as they are delivered from Egypt. And then we also have a future reflection as it instructs the Israelites as to how they are to remember that present event that they are in. So we have past present, and future all colliding within these two chapters. And so we pick up uh, in chapter 12. I want to encourage you this morning to look to the screens because we've kind of spliced together the narrative of chapter 12 because like I said, it it goes back and forth between uh, the present occurrence and what is to be God's instructions for the celebration of the Passover. So if you'll follow along with me on the screen. It's going to be a little bit longer reading, so stay with me as we uh, walk through this. It says this, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, quote, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish. Did you notice that? The lamb without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight, then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. So around the doorway of the home. They shall eat the flesh at night, roast it on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it. I want you to pay attention to this. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand, and you shall eat it in haste. That means in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. So they need to be ready to move. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. Then it says, I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Then the people of Israel went and did so. So they obeyed the Lord. And as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone. And bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent. Imagine that with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. The people, so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children, so a big group. It says here, a mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So it's evident that there are actually sojourners or foreigners with, with the Israelites, possibly Egyptians who had bowed before the Lord. In verse 39, and they baked unleavened cakes of dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Verse 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by the people of Israel throughout their generations. In verse 50, all the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their host. We've been waiting for this moment, right? As we've been journeying through Exodus, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. He has delivered his people. The first 10 chapters have been leading to this moment. The time of Pharaoh's rejecting and questioning has passed. God's judgment will spill forth. This is the defining moment of a people. The people of God delivered from the tyranny of enslavement under the tyrannical rule of Pharaoh. God warned and warned and warned And yet the unwilling, hard heart of Pharaoh would just not relent in the face of signs and wonders and miracles. Pharaoh remained 
unwilling. And so we have our first point for this morning. We're going to make three points from the text in, ver- in chapters 11 and 12. Our first point is this, an unwilling ruler and our almighty God. An unwilling ruler and our Almighty God. I want to note, uh, Brian did an excellent job presenting the text last week, so much so that I think I listened to his sermon twice on our podcast this past week. He did an awesome, awesome job giving us a picture of the showdown between Pharaoh and the Almighty, which wasn't very much of a showdown, was it? God had the upper hand. God has the upper hand. God is exercising his authority over this unwilling ruler. And within this display, he is solidifying his lordship over all things. Not just Pharaoh, but over all things. He is displaying fully for his own people, the Israelites, that he is near them, that he hears them, that he's involved in their plight. He is helping them. And that he will stop at nothing to deliver his people. God will stop at nothing to deliver you. He's also showing his lordship to the Egyptians that they may also know the one true God. And yet the representative of this people, Pharaoh, is what? He's unwilling to relent. He's unwilling to heed the instruction of Moses and Aaron. We understand from this section that the relentless pursuit of God towards his people will not be stifled by the unwillingness of a mere mortal. God will overcome. Exodus eleven nine to 10 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. I think we've said much about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart over the past few weeks. We don't need to really unpack that any further. I want to make one more point about it, though. Pharaoh is getting exactly what he wants. Pharaoh has hardened his heart against the Lord, and he's getting exactly what he wants. He has rejected God. If he wanted mercy from God, all he need do is cry out. If he desired to have fellowship with Yahweh, all he need do is be willing to bow and relent and let the Israelites go. But this is not the case. And as one hardens their heart towards God, this is is a warning. As one hardens their heart towards God repeatedly over and over again, the warning is this, is that that heart becomes calloused and hardened. To the point that at some point there is no hope. Because it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, hardened his heart, hardened his heart. Then the Lord hardened his heart. And eventually time runs out. And God's just judgment must be executed. Our God is just. He has to execute his judgment. And his judgment on those outside of his covering is this. It's death. It's God's judgment. Exodus 11, 4 to 5. Let me be clear. God leaves Pharaoh without excuse. 
He gives them every opportunity. Verses 4 to 5, chapter 11. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. God has warned him through Moses and Aaron what is to come. It's interesting here in this section that it notes even the firstborn of the cattle. Why that particular animal? Because to the Egyptians, the cattle were, were a god. They, they venerated the cattle. And so God is even saying here, I am Lord over your little g gods. The unwilling heart of Pharaoh has led to a time of judgment. You see, here, here's the truth. Our God is a patient God, right? But patience must also collide with His justice. He is also a just and good and righteous Father. Justice must be executed. God's patience is vast. I've experienced that personally. But eventually His patience comes to an end. And he must execute his judgment. I do believe there's an ethical question that we're drawn to within verses 4 to 5. You notice it mentions the slave girl. Even the slave girl's firstborn. The scripture notes that you have a a group of, of lower class people in this society that they will suffer the same fate as Pharaoh has. How is that fair? You might be asked. How is this fair? Why must they suffer the same fate? I want to make two points here. One is going to be a theological point, and then one's going to drill down into what's actually occurring in Egypt. Here's the first point. Representation is a theme all throughout Scripture, that we are represented by something. In the beginning, if we think back to the beginning of all things, you have the creation of Adam and Eve. Adam's decision represented who? All of humanity. So that we are born into what we call original sin. We are, we are born sinful. Looking to Exodus, in the overarching narrative of Exodus, we have pictures of representation first in Moses. Moses is a representative for God's people. His faithfulness to God's plan, securing Israel's release from captivity. He he represented Israel. Pharaoh, on the other hand, is a representative of the Egyptians. His unwillingness sealing the fate of the Egyptians. And we also witness representation in the New Testament. Thank goodness. Jesus in the New Testament is described as the last Adam meaning he is the representative before God on behalf of his people. Who are his people? Those who place their faith and trust in his finished work. Thank God for Jesus' representation before our holy, righteous Father. Now drilling down to the slave girl, we must remember this. We must remember that all Egyptians were complicit. They did nothing 
about Pharaoh's decree of the killing of Hebrew children. If you think back to Exodus chapter 1, it says in verse 22, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people. He said this, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. You shall participate with me in the death sentence of the Hebrew children. There's no distinction in that passage of of the societal classes here. They all participated in Pharaoh's decree, and so they are all guilty. Our hearts may be heavy at this thought of death, but church, it is the just penalty for the rejection of God's gracious and merciful hand. The Egyptians are represented and named under the unwillingness of Pharaoh and his hard heart towards God. And also this, they actively participated in the infanticide that occurred in Egypt towards the Israelites. Even if they didn't personally kill children with their own hands, they participated as they idly sat by and did nothing about it. Our second point for this morning, sorry, that's a heavy section there. The good news will be building as we move on this morning. Our second point, an exchange. We see an exchange happen. As I noted in our introduction, the narrative of chapter 12 ebbs and flows from past to present to future. An exchange takes place or the present activity of God in in delivering his people takes place in chapter 12, which weaves within the remembrance of the practice of the Passover. We see in chapter 12 the idea of an exchange or, or a transfer. Okay, Verse 13 in chapter 12, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt, whose blood was on the doorpost? The lamb. Our opening reading detailed the instruction of God to his people. What must they do to be saved, to be passed over? To be passed over by God's judgment and released from captivity. They must follow the instructions of God killing an unblemished lamb and placing the blood of the lamb on the doorframe of the house. They are literally, church, under the blood of a spotless, unblemished lamb. That's a detail that I want you to just kind of file away for just a few minutes, okay? So we witness here in this passage an exchange, an exchange of life. The spotless sacrifice covers God's people so that he passes over them. His judgment passes over them. It doesn't fall upon them. It was the blood, right, that covered them. Anyone in the land not under the blood would have had their firstborn wiped out. Even if an Israelite disobeyed and they were not under the blood, when God passed over, his judgment would fall upon that household. If they did not trust in the blood covering for their household, the judgment of God would surely befall them. 
Our first exchange is evident. The spotless lamb's life was given in exchange for God's people, those who submit to, the, to God's instruction and command. The blood was a covering so that God's judgment would pass over those who had the blood over their household. But there's another exchange evident within this text. If you recall back to Exodus chapter 4, you remember God's warning to Pharaoh. All the way back in chapter 4, it says this. 4 verses 22 to 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. We see an exchange there, don't we? Israel is identified as God's firstborn son. A place and position in in the family of inheritance and favor. Pharaoh is warned. And so in a sense, we need not feel pity for Pharaoh because God has given him so many chances. For his unwillingness, he has, he has rejected God's offer time and time and time again. And so God executes an exchange. Surely the taking of Pharaoh's firstborn son will finally convince him that the Almighty, one true God, is in his midst, right? And doesn't it? It does convince him. As Pharaoh declares in Exodus twelve thirty one, what does he say? Up! And go out from here. I've had enough. But also, we can't miss Jesus in this passage. We can't miss the overarching significance of the theme of of this exchange within the grand redemptive story of Scripture. You see, these events in Exodus, they happened in history And they are a type and shadow of a a greater exchange, a far greater exchange. An exchange that would come some 1,400 years after the physical exodus from Egypt. This is what happened. God came in the flesh as a better representative of his people in the person and work of who? Jesus. Jesus is God in the flesh. In John's gospel, he is called the Lamb of God. John 1.29, it says, Behold, the Lamb of God who what? Who takes away the sin of the world. You think this is a coincidence? The perfect, unblemished lamb had delivered the Israelites from the tyranny of Pharaoh and slavery. The blood of the lamb freed them from their plight, and yet the greatest of enemies was still present. Because this event represents more than deliverance from a physical enemy, but eventually deliverance from our spiritual condition, which is sin. And our deliverance from the rulers and authorities and the spiritual powers at work in this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It is deliverance from the deceiver, Satan, who has shielded the eyes of humanity and unbelief and unwillingness towards God's mercy and grace. Jesus has delivered us from that. Apart from the work of Jesus, 
We are in our sins. Did you hear me this morning? And we fall under the judgment of God. And you may think this morning, that's real judgy, Keith. I love you and I want you to hear the truth of God's word. The judgment of God is death. We see this portrayed in the taking of the firstborn in Egypt. Hear this about Jesus. Jesus is perfect. He's fully obedient to the eternal will of God the Father. God was not caught off guard by what we have done. He was sent to live perfectly in our place. He's our representative. And Jesus willingly went to the cross. And he bore the judgment of God on behalf of those who would place their faith and trust in his finished work. His blood was shed. It covered the crossbeam just as the blood of the Lamb covered the doorframe of the Israelites 1,400 years earlier. And under the blood of the Lamb, we are covered. We receive the exchange of our sin for the righteousness of God. The author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 9.22. says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Does anybody else get uncomfortable talking about or seeing blood? I do. Like, I'm not a big... I'll, I'll visit our congregants in the hospital. I'm uncomfortable while I'm there. I'm, I just don't like hospitals. I love what doctors can do for us, but I don't like getting poked by needles from doctors and nurses. I love you, doctors and nurses. Please save my life if I need you to. But I don't like blood. I just don't do well in those environments. But I want you to hear this. We cannot sanitize and minimize the message of Scripture. A blood sacrifice was necessary. The blood of the Lamb has to cover us. And so we have to talk about blood. The prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, puts it this way. He says, beginning out in kind of a mocking tone, he says, we do not subscribe to the lax theology which teaches that the Lord Jesus did something or other which in some way or other is in some degree or other connected with salvation of men. He says this, we firmly believe the doctrine of the atoning death of our great substitute. We stand to the literal substitution of Jesus Christ in the place of his people and his real endurance of suffering and death in their stead. And from this listing and definite, definite ground, we will not move an inch. Even the term, quote, the blood, from which some shrink with the affection of great delicacy, we shall not cease to use. Whoever may take offense at it, for it brings out that fundamental truth, which is the power of God unto what? Salvation. 
We dwell, this is where we are, Christian, in the room, we dwell beneath the blood mark and rejoice that Jesus, for us, poured out his soul unto death. Amen? Amen. 1,400 years before Jesus came, the Israelites believed God's words as delivered through Moses and Aaron. They trusted that the Lamb would cover them. And that death would pass over. Today, church, we trust in the one true spotless Lamb of God. That He has covered our penalty of death through His shed blood on the cross. And so we place ourselves under the beam of the cross of our Savior. Under His blood, which brings life. His death brings life, you say? It's because our Lamb didn't stay dead. Bible says he is the first fruits of life. He died on the cross, but on the third day, what? He rose in victory over sin and death. He's given to us this, this inheritance. Man, this hits home this week. Sorry. We lost a dear congregant this weekend. This is home. Church, he's resurrected. Jesus is alive. We are covered by the blood of the Lamb, our sins are forgiven. And we inherit the life of Jesus. We too enjoy the eternal benefits of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Come on, Keith, get together. I'm sorry, we're real here. If you're new, we're real. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh man, that's good news. The exchange of Jesus. He bore our sin, we receive his righteousness. And lastly this, God commanded that his deliverance be remembered. It's our last point, a remembrance. A remembrance. Exodus twelve fourteen. This day shall be for you a memorial day. Okay, just this past weekend, we celebrated our American holiday, uh, Memorial Day, where we remember men and women who have given their lives for our country and defending our freedom. Here, Moses is saying this is a memorial day that remembers the day that God passed over, his judgment passed over his people. And it says, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. And there's marks time and time again in the Old Testament. I, there's some examples of remembrance in Exodus 13, 14, in Deuteronomy 6, 7 to 9, and 20 to 21, 32, 7, and Joshua 4, 6, where it talks about their sons. Why do we do this? Well, tell them about the time that we were delivered from slavery. Tell them about the time that God's judgment passed over us and God had mercy and grace on us. 
And so why do we need to remember? Because if you're anything like me, we quickly forget the deliverance that God showered us with. Who's been there? Who forgets how good God has been to us? The Israelites were prone to wander from the Lord. And so God commanded that they remember this event by celebrating Passover, a remembrance of God's deliverance. Many of us know the story, right? We know what happens to the Israelites after they leave. They wander in the desert for 40 years after they're released from captivity. Why did that happen? Because they forgot about what God had done for them. They did not remember the faithfulness of God. And it says in the the text that they longed to go back to Egypt and be enslaved. But church, it's easy for us to judge, but we too struggle with this same fate, with these same thoughts. We struggle at times to remember. And so for those under the blood of Christ, we too are commanded to remember. We remember the sacrifice of Jesus when we receive the Lord's Supper each and every week as we gather together. We remember what it cost Jesus to cover our sin. The Israelites were commanded to celebrate the Passover every year going forward. But when Jesus came, he was the fulfillment of the Passover. He fulfilled it. He is the fullest expression of the Passover feast. Luke 22 details the Last Supper. It says this, And he said to them, that is Jesus, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Notice this phrase right here. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so I want to invite our band to come forward. It is fitting that we too remember the work of Jesus. We do that each and every week here at North Bullet Christian Church. And I want to invite you, for those of you in the room who have professed Christ, who are are Christians, if you do not pick up communion on the way in and you desire to receive the Lord's Supper with us this morning, go back. There's tables on either side of the room. Grab one of those. Come back to your seat. We remember the work of Jesus each and every week that we may be reminded that our hope and forgiveness and life rest in the work of another, Jesus. He's our representative. We too are prone to wander. We too are quick to question God in the face of adversity. We too long at times towards legalism or to check the box. God, just give me a checklist so I can finish it and then move on. We too are long to place ourselves under the yoke of slavery, the yoke of the law. We often say to God, I got this. I'll handle this. We too punish ourselves for our own sinful faults. But the Lord gave us this beautiful reminder of His work, didn't He? 
In his declaration from the cross, this is what he declared about his work. He declared these three words. He cried out, It is finished. The work is finished through Jesus. If you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven. You are covered by the blood of the Lamb. Church, I urge you, trust in the covering of Jesus' blood. Rest in the grace of God. Rest in the goodness of Jesus.